Welcome to the Center for Lit Podcast Network. You're listening to How to Eat an Elephant, a little book club for large books. Have you ever cast your eyes across a shelf full of classics and been driven screaming from the room by 500-page monsters with thick spines and important names? Then this is the show for you. We're here to take on these scary books together, because how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Well, hello, my friends. Welcome back to How to Eat an Elephant. I'm your host, Ian, joined today by my co-hosts, Megan and Emily. Ladies, how are we? Great. I'm just laughing at you because you drop into this very particular voice when you start our podcast. It's like a little bit lower. (laughs) It's like, this is Fireside Chats with Ian. And I absolutely love it. It gets me ready for the podcast. (laughs) You know... We do what we must. The sultry sounds of your voice. <laughs> yeah, it's a little sultry. You have a beautiful voice. I think you should lean I do. in. See, I don't know if that's true. I feel like <laughs> I have to find a way to make it low and round and rich. <laughs> Otherwise. See, I knew you were thinking about it. <laughs> it's going to be all nasally and strange up in here. <laughs> you do not have a nasally voice. Well, I'm glad you I'm glad you don't think so. He's <laughs> still trying. I'm not. Oh my goodness. Oh no. We're going to start this podcast by trying to make Ian feel as self-conscious as possible. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to. If you if it will make you feel better, I'll throw myself under the bus here at the beginning of our podcast. Yes, I think it would. Well, it's okay, good. It's like tangentially related to our study of Lehman, so I feel like it's a good opener. I was having a conversation with someone last night and and I alluded to the fact that we do this podcast and that the three of us are are technically supposed to be, you know, using our English degrees to study this work <laughs> and provide a little context to help people understand what this book is about. And, you know, this person was listening to me and, and ready to believe that I was an expert on this field. And so he asked a couple questions about context. And I then launched into a long conversation about romanticism and the enlightenment and how the two you know periods influenced each other and that there was like a pendulum and these ideas were changing and i mixed up the order of those two movements and then made a very convincing case that they were the way they were and then i had this niggling fear on the way home that i had them backwards and i did (laughs) (laughs) wait you gave a speech on these two literary periods and talked about the transition from one to the other backwards yep I sure did. Okay, I here's an interesting follow-up question. Myself and everyone else. Yep. It, did it work? Well, you know, no. It definitely. There was a reason I was I was worried on the way home. <laughs> uh, the truth is, romanticism emerges after the Enlightenment, right? So there's like a focus on reason in the Enlightenment, and romanticism is a swing the other direction. Man is more than just his cognitive faculties. Let's not forget his passion and his his emotion and his response to the world. Fairly sure now, after more reading, romanticism does come second, further into the 18th century, right? Yeah. And well, now I'm 19th, concerned. I don't yeah. know. I would confirm it, but I need to go look it up. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> well, funny. I had it completely backwards and... Uh, and it was embarrassing. So yeah, if if the rest of you are confused about that as well, I encourage you to go and read and please don't, you know, disbelieve everything we say. But I don't know that I would call myself a true expert now. <laughs> <laughs> 
podcasting isn't about getting the facts right. It's about being confident as you say them. <laughs> well, I sure was confident. <laughs> uh, I mean, it makes sense. In our section today, things get a little confused time period wise. We go, we move through a series of philosophical opinions quite quickly. And some of them are backwards looking and some of them are forwards looking and some of them are the past reemerging and taking a new form and cherry picking things from the previous movement. Yep. Yeah. I mean, if we're, if we are going to dive in to talk about the, the book now, I, it struck me over and over again, how, despite the fact that he's talking about ideas that are firmly rooted in his own era and in the one directly preceding it, he's also painting a really accurate picture of tons of people that I know personally here today in 2023. I mean, it's the ebb and flow of political opinion, the way that it's tied to people's stations in life and their age, Hmm. just stirringly and poignantly and specifically painted in a way that's all kinds of universal and human. The, the old men of his era sound a lot like the old men of mine. The young men of his era sound a lot like the young men of mine. And it was, there were times when I, th- I thought, does he know so-and-so? Because so-and-so talks just like this. <laughs> yeah. I think that's really true. That's funny. Even the young men who adopt the old men's ideas, I know some of those guys too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, they're at the, our our beloved alma mater is lousy with them i mean they're they're everywhere so where does our where does our reading for the day begin because like you said we're gonna hopscotch around a little bit right we sure are so we are further introduced to marius's grandfather who we spent some time with in our last reading (laughs) you're right again hugo says okay now let's talk about marius Mm, never mind never mind we still got to talk about his grandfather some more (laughs) I'm going to confess just right here out loud on the podcast that this section was so long for a lot of reasons. It felt longer than usual content wise, but it was so long that I have forgotten where it begins. So I'm currently <laughs> looking back in the book. Oh, oh no, I got it. I remembered. It actually doesn't focus long on Monsieur Guinomald. He actually is kind of a jumping off place to talk about Narius's father. So the end That's of right. the very short salon chapter we hear about the brigand of the Loire, and that's Marius's father. And we get the whole history. Megan, what an accent. I know. Look, I actually did some reading in French today. Voila. It's resurrected in me. So we find out that Marius's father was, even though his grandfather calls him a, a brigand or a bandit, that he was actually highly accomplished in the Napoleonic army and was at all of the important battles and highly distinguished himself and was made a baron on the field. It, connections are made that remind us that this is the same man that Thenardier quote unquote saved and that now he has returned and is has been cut off from visiting his son because of the change in regime and because of his father-in-law's opinions about Politics. the restoration. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and the, he does all of this describing. I thought it was really poignant, by the way. Like, I, I think the idea of a man who literally saw the entire, well, at least on the on his continent, the whole world, right, at the time, and was involved in every single important moment is was spectacular to read. 
But I think he does that specifically in order to lionize him in Marius's eyes and to make the figure of his father and the figure of Napoleon the same person, right? To to twin those ideas and to emphasize Marius's youth and his unmoored philosophical ideas. Did you guys notice that trend spidering along? Yeah. Are you kind of consolidating the two chapters together? Marius, as he comes to terms with his dead father's significance in his own life, right? Yeah, exactly. And it's, well, I don't know. Again, back to the to the theme I was talking about earlier, Hugo is, is describing youth and is describing a developing mind. And he, I can't, I don't know if I'm going to be able to find it right now, but there's a passage where he describes the pitfalls that are possible on the way to enlightenment. Mm-hmm. Those aren't the words he uses. Do you remember what I'm talking about? I know what you're talking about. Yeah. I don't remember his exact words either. More or less, if if I can sum up, he says that a, a young man, as he's in the process of acquiring a philosophical stance, has to exaggerate it and make it as extreme as possible in order to get his mind around the ideas. But that as he does that, he is going to fall into error. And I mean, no truer words have ever been spoken. And I think it's a it's a brilliant and a beautiful setup to meeting the ABC club later on in our reading section for today. Well, I think it might be important to go back a couple of pages and notice that we don't actually hear about Georges Pontmercy, who is Marius's father, on the battlefield first. The first we hear of him is, of course, from the grandfather. He calls him a brigand, as Emily said, a bandit of the Loire. But then we see him not on the battlefield in glory next to Napoleon, but by himself in a tiny little house with only one servant and cultivating flowers. I think that there were so many callbacks to the original character, our very first character we met in the story, who lives alone in his house with one woman to take care of him and who loves to walk in his garden and appreciate created things as he imitates his creator. I thought that was profound and intentional on the part of Hugo, that we are associating with Monsieur Madeleine, not Monsieur Madeleine, what's his name? Monsieur Madeleine's the, the Jean Bishop. Valjean character. Uh, the Bishop. Yeah. Yeah, Bienvenue. Uh, but also Jean Valjean. Right? right. He comes out with pruning shears, which every time I hear the word pruning, I think of the fact that that was Jean Valjean's original career. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he it just seems like such a clear echo of Jean Valjean and Cosette. Right. And I think that's really significant because of where the chapter about Georges Pontmercy goes. In the end, because of the political differences between him and his father-in-law, he allows his son to be taken away and raised by his grandfather. And he's not even allowed to ever see him. He never gets to meet him. Right. On the bottom of page 610 in our version, it's described this way. This child would have been the colonel's joy in his solitude, but the grandfather had imperiously demanded his grandson, declaring that unless he were turned over to him, he would disinherit him. The father yielded for the sake of the little boy, and not being able to have his child, he set about loving flowers. So even that little phrase, the child would have been the colonel's joy in his solitude, harkens back to Jean Valjean finding such joy in loving little Cosette. I think we're definitely supposed to see a foil building here. Only this man has it has been taken from him. He's bereft of the comforts that Jean Valjean is given. Yeah, there's there are different kinds of bereft though. And I, the other comparison that's drawn again, Megan, between Bienvenue and and Pontmercy is is the passage about priesthood and soldiering 
being oh, yeah. the same profession, right? Where I one man gives that. his life for his country, the other gives his life for the country hereafter or something along those lines. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was really beautiful too. Bienvenu does not appear bereft, despite the fact that he has been signing away every penny he makes his entire adult life. He's contented instead, and it's because he's been called to a mission of sorts. And so I wonder I wonder if Pontmercy, I, I don't know, what do you make of the contrast between those ideas? Well, I definitely see a contentment in the in Pontmercy's situation that's similar to Bienvenu's. I don't know if the reason is the same, but there's a line that says he thought he was sacrificing himself alone. And so in that he was happy. He didn't know that this was going to cause problems for his son. He thought his son was was saved, wasn't the one being sacrificed. And so there was some joy to be found in caring for his flowers and sacrificing only his own happiness. Maybe that that kind of salvific sacrifice is a constant between the two of them. The grandfather doesn't come out of this description looking very rosy, does he? No, no, he does not. He becomes pretty much a villain in this section. But Marius, for his part, is raised to hate the idea of his father, to think of his father with shame. And I thought that was, that's the worst crime that the grandfather commits. Yeah. Yeah. And to think of his father as a political idea mm-hmm. rather than as a person. And, and that, I think that idea is large in this section as well, even in the minute descriptions we get of each one of the personalities in the ABC club later on. And I'm not trying to, to leap us forward, but mm-hmm. how many ills in this novel are going to come down to looking at a person based on their political position instead of based on their humanity mm-hmm. a lot. It seems like that there's an aside that the cure who sits in the spot where Marius's father used to observe him in, in the cathedral. He says that to Marius, right? He says uh, some people take these political ideas too far. I think you're right that that hangs over the section and he continues to confuse his father with Napoleon. So is this is this a good thing for Marius? I mean, it's a difficult question because it frees him from his grandfather's, from the little insular community of his grandfather's salon, right? You mean the discovery of his father? Yeah. And the- yeah. And, and even though the pendulum swings too far in the Bonapartist direction, maybe, I don't know. It seems like this awakening of Marius is definitely pushes him in, well, it pushes him in the direction of a more satisfying plot. (laughs) Well, and he takes possession of his own mind. He's not just a parrot of someone else's ideas. The struggle that he faces as he tries to find those ideas for himself is very relatable. And humanizing. The description of Marius at the end of the salon section, like what, what his grandfather produces left to his own devices to raise Marius is a robot boy. He really is a robot. Yeah. He's austere and proud and religious and honorable and harsh and unsociable. And he stands only for political principles that are not his own. He's a total robot. So I think the moment that he discovers his father, his world's kind of broken open. And yes, he swings like a pendulum to another political extreme, but at least this one he's choosing for himself. Maybe we're gonna we're gonna watch Marius come to the center a little bit. I hope that we will. Kind of strange though that one of the things Hugo is going to use to bring our little political fanatic to the center is a group of radicals. Yeah. Yeah. I actually kind of wonder if he already passed through the center and is now going to the other extreme. I I was trying to find Hugo and all of these ideas. Yeah. And 
I don't know what you guys think, but for me, the description that resonated the most as one that the author was behind was the, I think he called them the doctrinaires. So there's the ultras. Those yeah. That's what uh, Marius's grandfather is, the, the group that is so pro that they're contra. Yes. <laughs> but then he said another generation rose up who were younger and who were conservative believed that they should honor they said something like the flirtily as well as the n is our heritage and we must embrace both to understand france and that seemed i don't know as he was talking about that and as he was talking about mary's adopting bonapartist ideas and seeing that napoleon was not a god he was a man with flaws but that he was the incarnation of france and he was the people man like jesus was the god man right and that he spread French ideals. He made France like more French. Put it on the map of Europe, essentially. That that all sounded very sympathetic to me. I think so too. That section that you're referencing, I think the conclusion of that paragraph sums it up. He says, They are our patrimony, the fleur de lis and the ends. What is gained by diminishing it? We must not disown our country in the past any more than in the present. Why not want our whole history? Why not love all of France? That definitely feels like a Victor Hugo calling out to us rather than some character in his story. Yeah, I need, I want to learn more about his own personal political opinions. I know he says here that he he's observing what happened in the century and he has to relate this, especially because his mother was a royalist. So I don't know. I don't know where he falls. I mean, I do think that in the end, the most important thing is the thing that Ian said, that it's uh, the political ideas are all well and good, but if they are adopted and to the harm of, you know, the people, we do not, we're not progressing at all. Well, yeah. And I guess my question is, is Hugo going to give us in his own politics an idea that progress is a possible and if possible, a good on the one hand, he parodies conservatism. I mean, that from a little bit earlier in this chapter, we've been talking about conserve, conservatism, conservative was nearly their entire dictionary. Speaking of the ultras, to be in good odor was the point. There was, in fact, something aromatic about the opinions of these venerable groups and their ideas smelled of Indian herbs. It was a mummified world. The masters were embalmed. The valets were stuffed. <laughs> right. So he's got this this idea of conservatism as backwardness. And, the way, and I think it's because he's talking about the social order as much as he's talking about the position of France internationally. But as he paints all of these varying kinds of progressive Reformation ideas, they all sound as ineffective as the conservatism, right? And in fact, we know already, because this is a famous story, we know how some of these revolutionary ideas are going to end in death, in the, the murder of innocent youths, right? So I, I don't know. I'm struggling, like you said, Emily, to identify Hugo's uh, stance in all of this. Well, there was a, a line that caught my eye, and I think it's actually at the beginning of the next section when he's describing the ABC Club, which I always, I never really understood why they were called the ABC Club. And now I they're the Abbasse Club, right? The Of the abased, championing the abased. Yeah, the way that the French pronounce the letter names actually is significant. They say they don't call A A, they call it A, and B 
and say. And if you put all those together, abaissé is a French word that means the debased. But also they use it to, yes, exactly. They use it to mask themselves as a education, a, a society that promotes the education of children, which is, you know, ironic. Right. Because they themselves then become the children. <laughs> yeah. But let's see, I want to find it. It's, here it is. It's on page 641. It is the very first page of a book four of Marius. And it says, other groups of thinkers were more serious. Here they fathomed principle. There they attached themselves to right. They longed for the absolute. They glimpsed the infinite realizations. By its very rigidity, the absolute pushes the mind toward the boundless and sets it afloat in the limitless. There's nothing like dogma to produce the dream. There's nothing like dream to create the future. Utopia today, flesh and blood tomorrow. And I think that seems very complicated to me because I I do hear Hugo saying that in order to achieve progress, we have to fix on the ideals and we have to understand the utopia before it becomes flesh and blood. But the presence of blood there, you know, signals to me the fact that these are bloody ideas. They were the first time in 1789 and they're going to be again here in 1827. So it seems like a double-edged sword. And one of the things about his, the way he characterizes the ultras is that it that these kinds of ideas, or maybe it's just this attitude to take with one's ideas, I'm not really sure, but it flattens the world. So there's a line where he says, the sense of the grand was lost as well as the sense of the ridiculous. And I can see in the ABC club, we're going to get the sense of the grand, right? I mean, they're all taking themselves so, so seriously. And on the one hand, it's ridiculous and young. On the other hand, who's to say that the ridiculous isn't sometimes grand? And maybe humanity and society needs needs that. So I can I can definitely hear him yearning for an earnest expression of one's ideas rather than a reserved and a, a reserved and therefore shallow version. Well, yeah, he says something like the ultras ridiculed the century and therefore did not have to understand it. Right. So even in adopting a ridiculous position in search of truth, at least you're at least you're not ignoring the problem. Did anyone, I don't know if we're going too fast, but did anyone, when we jumped from the conversation about Marius to the ABC club, did you hear the like, ba 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 The transition in the music. Yeah. Red, Absolutely. the blood of angry fun. Here we go. Uh, we're gearing up, you guys. <laughs> for those of you who are confused, though, or who maybe, I just want to say, for those of you readers who maybe looked at all of these little digressions, not little, gigantic digressions, <laughs> off into various fields of politics, for those of you who maybe quit or said, I'll catch you guys next time, quick plot note, Marius finds out who his father was, learns that his father really did love him, dives off into Napoleonic history idolizes Napoleon and his father and runs away from home with no money. Yep. And so with when no we money. find the friends of the ABC or the ABC, he gets off a coach in the middle of nowhere and happens to be in their neighborhood. And they see him as a young and likely convert to their mission and draw him in to their group. So he's basically their drinking buddy now and is going to partake of all of their ideas for the two chapters that we experience. And it's a new 
reality to him because he's grown up in a world where it's either Napoleon good, like his father, a Bonapartist, or Napoleon bad, a royalist. Mm -hmm. And here he comes upon a group that says Napoleon bad, but not because because he was a royalist. Mm -hmm. We say no to all emperors. I am beginning to wonder if Napoleon is supposed to be kind of a, a figure or a symbol of fatherhood. In the story, we talked about a couple minutes ago, we talked about how Marius confuses his father with Napoleon and politicizes his father. Right. But I he wonder, moved from the rehabilitation of his father naturally to the rehabilitation of Napoleon. Right. And that's a politicization of a person, which is right. wrong. But I wonder if you can move from the other direction as well, which is that Napoleon is more than just a political ideal, but he is kind of the the father of modern France and has to be reckoned with for good or ill in some way in order to understand the century. That, I think that's certainly true. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting to read this characterization of Napoleon alongside the one that we got in war and peace. Yeah. <laughs> right. I, mean, uh, it, I get the sense they're both true. That's the interesting thing about it. And and maybe it's just that Hugo is a great novelist and a great interpreter of human nature, but both sides of Napoleon appear to be there and appear to be equally supported by the history. On the one hand, he is grandiose and has a heightened sense of his own importance and with the flick of a finger sends thousands upon thousands the to despot. their deaths. Right. Right. He's a despot. On the other hand, he is unequivocally one of the most powerful personalities and one of the foremost geniuses of his era. And when he went about marching around Europe, his goal was to spread the ideals of democracy, liberty, equality, fraternity, but right? Like <laughs> I think this this idea, tying the idea of Napoleon back to a symbol of fatherhood, though, resonates. Because where the friends of the ABC land is, the father is beside the point. Who we love is the idea of the mother, of nationality mm. and you know, he can do what he wills with the moving France out into the other nations. We care about the heart and soul of France. We care about the home fires and right. all is not well here. And our focus is on the freedom of, of the mother. I think that that familial idea might be the kernel of what Hugo is trying to get at here. He definitely has a heart for Paris herself and the nation of France at home. And I think maybe some of the drama that's going to take place in the second half of our novel does center around that idea, that side of the family image. I really like that. Mm. Angel Ross says, my mother is the Republic. Yeah. It's interesting. There is some irony to the fact that all of these boys are, they come from wealthy families. They come from the bourgeois. Yeah, all but one, aristocracy, right? All mm -hmm. but one. I mean, they do. Rich <laughs> they boys. do have working classmen who join them, but I believe we're told that the of the two meeting houses that they've established, they more often than not meet closer to the students. It's an intellectual proposition. Not, I mean, not for Andros, right? Andros is kind of like this burning, pure fire who, even though he yeah. is a student and even though he is from a noble family, he take he's like, he is an idea himself. But at, least, at least he's treated like one. I mean, I, I loved 
this, even though it was very long and not super plot oriented, I loved this, this whole opening to book four, where he describes each of the Fanatics. students involved in the ABC club in turn. And it's a beautiful literary device, right? Let's, let's examine every side of a movement like this mm. one at a time. Let's talk about the obsession with justice and let's personify it. Let's make it a person in Angelos. I love that. It's then let's the, talk about philosophy. Let's yeah. personify that one, and so on and so on. And I, I, he does a good job, I think, of isolating and and describing. And maybe he's maybe it exaggerates each one, but he isolates and describes all of the aspects of a political movement like this. Oh, I I agree with that. It's interesting that they're caricatured in some ways because they are they are just ideas and. They're talking about very dangerous, very real ideas, but none of them have actually, none of them have had Fontaine's experience. Or Marius's father's experience, yeah. right? On the two extremes. I loved the description of Angelus, not as like a, he was an angel, but not like a cherubim. He was like Ezekiel's angel. Ezekiel's angel. angel. I underline <laughs> that too. Me. Did you guys see that meme that went around this Christmas that was like, my wife told me to get an angel for the top of the tree. And it's like this terrifying, like starfish <laughs> <Yeah>. with eyes. <laughs> it's like a revelation uh, angel. <laughs> what do you guys think of this? Beside Anzaras, who represented the logic of the revolution, Combeferre, who knows if I'm pronouncing that correctly, represented its philosophy. Between the logic of the revolution and its philosophy, there is this difference that its logic could conclude in war while its philosophy could only end in peace. I actually have, if we were like choosing favorites, I think Combeferre was probably my favorite for that reason. But that just might, that could just be my own bias, you know? Well, I think it's all of our bias though, because what Combeferre says is that the future is in the hands of the schoolmaster. And all three of us <laughs> are schoolmasters. And we're like, yeah, it does. But for the record, hands. Hugo agrees with us. I mean, <laughs> he, he says a little bit farther down the same page that revolution with Combeferre was more possible than with Ross. But let's not forget, I think that Hugo's greatest hope, according to what we've recently read, is not the education of the already educated, but the education of the Gamal. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and the these Grisette. guys are talking about, they're just, they're insular, right? They meet in this meeting house and they just talk among themselves. They're not doing anything. Whereas if, if that was true, if with what Combeferre, if he really believed that, then he would be inviting the garages of the world into this room, right? But here's a fascinating thing. So we have Angelos and Combeferre. One represents logic. The other represents philosophy. Shortly after that, we have Jean Prouvaire, who's addicted to love. He just loves everyone and everything, and he's a little bit shy. But he he's confuses the future and God in the same faith. Yeah, yep. He's just, he's loving and faithful and good. But then we have Foyi, which is a really hard name to say, but when you, have, when you see a double L in French, you pronounce it like a Y. Foyi is an orphan who wants to adopt the people. And I think by including that character, that might be Hugo you know, throwing an arm around the gamin, the orphan of the streets in Paris. And that is where these idealists and fanatics are attempting to extend their conversation towards the people. They do use the term too much and too too vaguely, I think. Their their goal is to reach the people. But Foyer seems to be a a representative in some ways. In some ways he's like a gamin himself. 
I, I wonder how much of this novel is going to be about breaking down the people into persons. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so, too. I think so, too. And the other thing about it, it, I can hear Hugo asking himself some of the questions that he's posing his characters. And I don't know that he comes down on any firm answer. He does. He feels to me, like you said, he's the doctrinaire, right? Um, and maybe you're right about that. He feels a little bit more conservative than progressive to me. But I guess time will tell. But he does also seem to understand that these revolutions, though they are attempting to change the fabric and fiber of their nation, can't ultimately do it. He says, the robbery of a nation never becomes prescriptive. These lofty swindles have no future. You cannot remove the identifying mark from a nation as you can from a handkerchief. So, and to me, that doesn't come across with a defeatist tone. All revolutions are doomed. The bad things about a country will always be the bad things about a country. Maybe it's, maybe it's positive instead. France will always be France, regardless of the turmoil that these ideas create. He also says that these moods, these revolutionary moods just metamorphize people kind of unawares that, and it's like a a cyclical thing that it's bound to happen kind of like clockwork. Oh yeah. There's that image of the, the hands of the clock changing people, the dials sweeping around them and changing royalists into liberals and liberals into Democrats, et cetera, on a continuum. So we're just seeing another, another turn of the clock that I wonder what that says that if he, I mean, is it the, is it the circular movement? That's kind of like a spiral of always moving just a little bit forward. Maybe. Maybe. He says on page 651, all, all of these iterations of the movement were legitimate sons of the French Revolution. The flightiest became solemn when pronouncing the date 89. According to the flesh, their fathers were or had been foyants, royalists, doctrinaires. It hardly mattered. This earlier hurly-burly had nothing to do with them. I feel like that is deeply ironic. It had everything yes. to do with them. They're doing it again. Yes. They were young. The pure blood of principles flowed in their veins. They attached themselves with no intermediate shadings to incorruptible right and absolute duty. I just think that they are completely embodying a previous iteration of history. They are history repeating itself. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. It's it's supremely ironic and also loving, right? Mm-hmm. I don't think he's he's not being overly critical but I think he is sort of saying, O tempora, O morris, right? right? He's more or less saying, look, everybody conceives that the problems of their era are brand spanking new on the face of the earth. Everyone and young. therefore they <laughs> yeah. constitute an emergency. I don't know. I don't think it's everyone young either. I think uh, the grandfather does the same thing. That's one of the great things about his, his portrayal, right? The salon is an older version of the ABC club mired in an older version of the same set of emergencies. And I think it's just humanity that thinks of itself this way. We are standing on the cusp of history. The next thing that happens is the most important thing that has ever happened. And Hugo sort of says, oh, my children, that cannot possibly be true. And he uses big ideas to talk about it. And he uses mundane ones. Like, for example, the national debt. Did you notice that? One of the one of the the issues that the ABC Club calls to witness their cause is Look how high the national debt is. <laughs> it was back in this other. I mean, how many times you had that conversation with your grandfather? Yes. Right. How many times? 
it's, oh, with our it's the same quite a few <laughs> all the time. I mean, it's, I, I just think that one of the impacts of Hugo's novel, and maybe this is true of great literature in general, is that it soothes, it soothes anxiety in the reader by saying it has always been the way that it is now. And Hugo, at least, seems to be saying, even though it has always been the way that it is now, there are truly good, truly compassionate, truly loving people. And those people are going to be the salvation of the nation. Well, capable of heroism and good. And even if their ideas are a little misdirected, they are committed and they are honorable and loyal and there are, are good things about these people. But also it, it is tragic though, right? We're, we're told from the very outset, even for those of us who don't know what's coming, that this is not going to end well for these young men. There is a consequence to these ideas. There's something sobering about that too. Where are we told that? I was actually looking for a, a line of foreshadowing or some foreboding. Obviously, I know the story from watching the musical time and again. Mm -hmm. I feel like it was at the, I don't know if I underlined it. I think it was at the beginning of book four, towards the beginning, uh, right when he's introducing the young men. Some kind of dubious phrase. Let's see. It's page 643 at the top. Most of the friends of the ABC were students in close association with a few workmen. The names of the principals are as follows. To, an assert, to a certain extent, they belong to history. Enjolras, Combeferre, Jean Prubert. I'm not going to say them all. These young men constituted a sort of family among themselves through friendship. All except Legault were from the South. It was a remarkable group vanished into the invisible depths behind us. At this point of the drama, it may be useful to throw a ray of light onto these young heads before the reader sees them sink into the shadow of a tragic adventure. There it is. Plenty foreshadowing for anyone who wants it. No kidding. And again, the sink into the shadow, the drowning man. It's another fall that we're witnessing, just like Fontaine's, just like Jean Valjean's. Okay, so it, it, I don't, I don't mean to back us up, but the one member of the ABC club that we didn't mention much yet is Grantaire. And Grantaire is the only non-idealist in the room. He's the most, to my mind, the most authentic of the young men in the room. <laughs> and he gives an impassioned, drunken speech. And one of the great things about drunken speeches in great works of literature is that that drunk guy is more articulate and eloquent than any of you because really it's Victor Hugo riding his hobby horse. <laughs> and it's a great speech. I would encourage you to go back and read it again if you kind of started skipping along going, goodness gracious, this guy's long-winded. Yeah, don't right. do that. And yet, read it, out it was loud. really, really good. Yeah. But his conclusion is the conclusion of the preacher in Ecclesiastes. He goes throughout the nations of the entire world and says, it's all the same. What great nations offer us as our national identities is war. That's what they all offer us. And there's not a dime's worth of difference between them. And the cultural differences are just masks for the fact that there is trouble dogging nations. And so the solution is, oh, drinking shops, eating shops, tavern signs, bar rooms, tea parties, meat markets, dance houses, brothels, rag pickers, tippling shops, 
Caravanserai? There you go. Caravanserai of the Caliphs. I swear to you, I am a voluptuary. (laughs) I eat at Richard's at 40 sous a head. I must have Persian carpets for rolling Cleopatra naked. Where's Cleopatra? Ah, it's you, Luzon. Good evening. (laughs) (laughs) Right? This is what the the preacher in Ecclesiastes says. Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. What the what life is for is eating and drinking and making merry with your friends. Except, I mean, I have to say there is a small difference, which is that he also says, "Live." The preacher in Ecclesiastes says, "Enjoy the wife of your youth." And, and yes, of course. But I, it's I'm serious about it because it's a there is some objective good mm-hmm. in in life according to the preacher, and I do think that Grantaire is supposed to be a nihilist. I agree with you. I think you're right. The point I was making, however, stands. It isn't that everything is ideology and you have to pick one because he's presented us with a room full of extremes, right? Andre Ross is the extreme devotee of justice. Uh, Combeferre is the extreme devotee of philosophy and so on and so on and so on. And I think in Grand Terre, even though he's a wastrel and you're absolutely right about that, he is presenting us with, or we could all just be people. It isn't necessary that man define himself by his philis- by his political affiliations. Right. I would say he doesn't, I don't know about the nihilism because he does come down on a truth, an absolute truth. He says all these ideologies separate mankind from one another. And what I see is the truest is that man is wicked. Man is deformed. The butterfly has succeeded. Man has missed. God failed on this animal. So that is a statement of an absolute. Mankind is deformed and it draws everybody together and tosses them out the window. I mean, maybe that is the definition of nihilism. Everything is bad. Let us toss it. But he isn't abandoning all absolute statements of truth. He's just saying my statement, my ideology where I stand is this is a mess. Mankind altogether universally is a mess. Well, and I think the interesting thing, if we are taking these guys as symbolic of of strains of thought is that that is the man who idolizes Angelos. That's the man who looks at justice yearning for it to be true. He's not sure it is true because when he looks around, what he sees is all these nations are exactly the same. They're all offering us a bill of goods and that bill of goods is a mask for war. But then, but, but he looks at Angelos, he looks at justice and says, boy, wouldn't that be something else? At the very least, Hugo's painting something true, I think, in that, in that relationship. What do you think, Emily? You're over there ruminating. I can yeah, see it. Yeah, I'm just chewing. I do think that that's, it's still an ideal. They're all an ideals. And the problem is that they don't touch down on any kind of reality. And Until he grabs the serving maid around the waist. <laughs> yeah. But even then, she represents Cleopatra to him in the moment. He has not come down <laughs> <That's to her>. <laughs> He represents, she represents naked Cleopatra. Cleopatra naked. That's such a great line. There were a lot of laugh lines in this section. I guess I'm still, well, I'm just waiting for Hugo to maybe show his hand and maybe he doesn't, he doesn't have a hand to show and maybe that's the point. But if, if what he is interested in is progress, he hasn't really presented a solution unless it's relational. And I do that as I'm kind of answering my own question, maybe as I talk this out, but all of these boys have, are idealizing freedom. And that leaves me with 
practical questions like, okay, if everyone is free, who's going to be in charge and will that be enough for you? Or will you still think yourselves slaves to the represented elect, like the elected representatives? Yeah. How far are you going to go with this? And how does this look? How do we not repeat 1789? Are, are we just going to do this again? And you know how that went last time. And is there a solution to the problems that Hugo is pointing out with with the suffering of the people? Or are we just doomed to repeat history and and make them suffer more? Yeah. It reminds me of the humorous conversation that Marius has with, I can't remember who it is. I think it's Corferac, who's his roommate, um, about buying the watch. He says, you can buy, you can sell this watch and you can make some money. And Marius says, that's good. And Corferac says, no, it's not. It's not good. Then what will you do after that? And that's really funny and it's a little back and forth, but it also may be a lens through which we can look at all of the description we've just had of the boys of the ABC. Freedom, that's good. You're right. But what will you do after that? What are you going to do with this ideal? Even if you, even if you accomplish the impossible and you achieve this ideal, then what? You renounce wealth. He renounces the 600 francs from his grandfather, but then what? What is he going to do? He, you can't learn German and English in a couple days. You have three um, friends. What are you going to do? Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I do. The bishop, Bienvenu, hangs over everything, I think. And he was a man who worked towards progress because he had a personal relationship with the people and he gave of himself to them. And I wonder if that isn't supposed to inform everything else that we read. But I do think the the last thing we hear is interesting. The beginning of chapter six of book four, uh, it says that evening left Marius profoundly disturbed with a dark inner sadness. He was experiencing what the earth may experience at the moment when it is opened by the plow, so wheat may be sown. It feels only the wound, the thrill of the seed and the joy of the fruit do not come until later. Mm. This this farming imagery with I mean, it, it's a it's a death and a resurrection again, right? The wound that leads to new life. It's also reminiscent of his father, the gardening imagery that we've already and Jean Valjean and the bishop. So even though, again, even though these ideals are misdirected, it does seem to it's a, a maybe a necessary evil, or it's it's going to be used for good in some way. There's a fruitfulness that comes out of the darkness. Yeah, and and that fruitfulness also typifies all of the political upheaval in all of these other centuries. I mean, the the connections he draws between Napoleon and Charlemagne and Henry the which Henry was he talking the about? Fourth. I can't remember Henry uh, the Fourth. Yeah, Leroy. The- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's lots of Henrys, dude. Um, but like, I think, yeah, the advantage of of the way Hugo talks about all these ideas is that. We can point fingers at the problems, at the misconceptions, at the ideological posturing, but in so doing, we're just knitting all of humanity together into a fraternity of believers, more or less, into guys who are convinced that these ideas are worth dying over. Whether they are or not is kind of beside the point. There's a fraternity in it. And I don't know. Like you said, Emily, he's returning us to the relational aspect of all of these things. Except for the tragedy is just like the... The curie said it's when it divides the people. And I do mm-hmm. think that there is a note of tragedy in the fact that in order to adopt the love of his father, Marius has to reject the love of his grandfather. And it's beautiful that he can't. 
also. I mean, on the one hand, they, they do end up separated, but there's a moment where he realizes, I can't insult my grandfather, but I can't renounce my dad. Yeah. What am I to do? The human ties that bind. Well, friends, I do appreciate your attention. And the two of you, thank you for being so eloquent and so intelligent on a day where I had snot pouring out of my face. That is so, <laughs> wow. Oh, man. That so, is so, so the recording. So glad. <laughs> hey, listen, everybody gets sick, even podcast hosts. Thank you, listeners, for being with us. And we cannot wait to talk to you some more about this great book. As always, please do come join us on Facebook. We'd like to hear from you. And maybe we'll drag some of your questions into our next episode. Until we meet again, my friends, bon appetit. Bon appetit. Want to follow along with our reading? You can find a link to the schedule in the show notes for this episode. How to Eat an Elephant is a part of the Center for Lit podcast network. Visit our website at www.centerforlit.com to find our other literary shows, resources, and our membership program, The Pelican Society, where you can get access to a variety of live discussion groups. You can also find us on most social media channels. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, happy reading. Happy reading.